Oh, it's nice to see new faces yet again. There's new faces here every time now, which I think is really excellent, and we're really excited about that. But uh, what we're doing at the moment is a series on the whole subjects of salvation. Now, you've come in right at the end. This is the last study. It's number 25. So, so we've really been diving into it in detail. And whereas we finished with the whole thing about salvation, what we started to do last week <clears throat> was to ask the question, can salvation be lost? Having established what it was and how you get it, the question is, can it be lost? And you'll remember that last week we went through the scriptures and I showed you absolutely clearly that it can't. In fact, the whole idea of losing your salvation, if any Christian has that, all it shows is they don't understand what the Bible teaches about salvation. So we saw last time quite clearly that the Bible teaches right the way through that if you've believed on Jesus, if you've been born again, then nothing but nothing, even falling away, even apostasy, nothing can prevent you eventually being with the Lord in glory. So there's only one thing left now. We've established that that's what the Bible teaches. But for tonight, the one thing left is this. There are passages in the Bible that many Christians maintain, teach, that salvation can be lost. So we need to deal with those. As we've been through this course, we've seen several of them already. We've looked at the passages in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, we've looked at the sin unto death. And so a lot of them we've already dealt with. But what we're going to do tonight are to just cover the ones that are left. All right, that's all we're going to do. And then by the time we've ended tonight, we will in fact have done the whole lot and everything will have been completely answered for you about this. Because people do say, look, the Bible does say you can lose salvation. It's important for you to know what these verses and passages actually do mean. Now, let's, let's go to the first one. Go to John 15. There's a few to do. John chapter 15, and this is Jesus speaking, John 15 and the first eight verses. <clears throat> now then, we have this. Jesus said, I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that bears no fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already made clean by the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If a man does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Now that's a famous 
bit of teaching from Jesus about the vine and the branches. But the, uh, there are two verses we're especially interested in. First of all, verse 2, every branch of mine that bears no fruit, he takes away. We've got to understand that one. And into verse 6, and this is the main one, if a man does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. And so people say, look, here you've got branches, they're believers, and they lose their salvation because they fall away and stuff like that, and they end up in lake of fire. So we've got to go through it and to understand exactly what Jesus is meaning here. Now, first of all, verse 1, we're establishing Jesus himself says, I am the vine, all right? So there's number one, Jesus is the vine, and his father, God the Father, looked after the vine, the vine dresser. Uh, isn't it lovely to know in the same way that father was all the time looking after Jesus, he's all the time looking after us as well. That's a lovely, a lovely thought. Go down to verse 5, and he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Now here he's speaking to Peter and Paul and the rest of the disciples and he's saying, He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So the branches here in verse 5 are believers, disciples, alright. And uh, of course the distinctive thing about, I chuck this in as an extra because this is so beautiful. The thing about the vine and the branches is just quite simply this. You see, when Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches, we have the picture that you've got Jesus as the vine, boom, over there, there's, there's Jesus. And the branches, that's us, over here. Now that's to miss the point of what Jesus is saying. Can you see the vine is the branches? Can you see there's no distinction of vine, it's made up of branches. It's showing our oneness with Jesus. When you're born again, you become one with Jesus. So Jesus could have said, I am a branch and you are branches. Or I'm the vine, you are the vine. That's the picture that he gives us. Okay, <clears throat> just pop into verse 2 and let's start dealing with these problem bits, as people say. Every branch of mine that bears no fruit, he takes away. Alright? And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Let's do the second bit first. He's saying that when a believer does bear fruit, and the kind of the life of Jesus begins to come through, that in actual fact, as you do with any good fruit tree, when it starts producing fruit, you prune it, you cut it back in order to produce more fruit. That's why uh, the Christian life has got so many difficulties in it. You just feel you're making progress and everything goes wrong. And it's because you produce a bit of fruit in the power of the Spirit and then the Lord chops it off because that makes way for even more fruit. But the bit we're interested are the branches that bear no fruit he takes away. Now, there are two things that this can mean, all right? Now, the reason is because this Greek word translated, take away, can mean two different things, all right? Firstly, it can mean to lift up. The word actually is aero, A-I-R-O, that is the Greek word, think barbels, all right? It's aero. And it has two different meanings. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at each meaning and then to see which one we think it is. The first one, aero, it means to lift up to lift up. So it could be that what Jesus is saying here is that every branch that bears no fruit, either because it's a believer who's not doing very well, or whether it's a believer who's just born fruit and been pruned, and remember after you've been pruned you haven't got any fruit. That's what pruning is. It could be here that Jesus is saying that when that is the case, then Father lifts you up 
he encourages you. And one's reminded of the writers of the Hebrews. He says, sort of lift up the weak hands and strengthen the weak knees, you see. And it could be that. But alternatively, the word aero does mean take away. It does mean quite literally take away. And that is in fact what the translators have, have gone for gone for. I think the translators are right in going for that translation. So let's assume it is take away. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now what is this meaning? Well cast your mind back to when we did the whole thing about the discipline of believers and the sin unto death. And let's say here that Jesus, the branches that bear no fruit, in fact, he's talking about believers who become absolutely apostate and they get so far away from the Lord they've got no intention of repenting at all. And we saw that when a believer gets into that state, God kills him, takes him home. You see? Takes him away. So, quite simply here, you've got the sin unto death. Which is quite simply when God, as it were, says to a believer, I'm wasting my time with you, you're so rebellious, you're so into sin, you're so stubborn, you're so disobedient to me, it's no use me leaving you down there because I can't do a thing with you, come on. Alright, so the sin unto death, here it is again, and when a believer is killed by God, but remember when that happens, you can't lose salvation, they just go to be with the Lord in heaven. So, whether it's... Encourage and strengthen, as in lift up, or whether it's take away, again, it has nothing to do with losing salvation, so we can pass that one by. But it's verse 6 that creates the problem. Let's read it again. If a man does not abide in me, <clears throat> he is cast forth as a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Now it's quite clear that here it does look like Jesus is saying that people who are branches, i.e. believers, can end up having been cut off and thrown into the lake of fire. And we've got to understand who these branches are. Now in order to understand this, hang on to this thought. I'm going to show you that the branches, these men and women who are branches that Jesus is referring to, who end up cut off and thrown into the lake of fire, they are not believers at all. They were unbelievers. Right, so who can they possibly be? Now in actual fact, in the um, through this course, we've already done enough back work, uh, groundwork, to understand what Jesus is saying here. Because what we're going to see is that these branches who end up thrown into the lake of fire, they were Jews who rejected Jesus as their Messiah when he came to earth. Alright? Go to Isaiah chapter 5, and you'll immediately see the symbolism here. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 1. Now this is God speaking through Isaiah. He says, Let me sing for my beloved a love song concerning his vineyard. I am the vine, you are the branches. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He digged it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. 
What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Now what you've got to understand is this. At the time when Jesus was on earth, every Jew was a branch of God's vine simply by virtue of being Jews. Because the Jews were God's chosen people. They were God's vineyard. So the mere fact that they were Jews, the mere fact they were Israelites, the mere fact that they were of God's chosen people meant that they were also individually branches of the vine. But of course, what happened with Israel, and this is all revision for us now, what happened with Israel was that because they rejected Jesus, Jesus came to them as their Messiah, and as we're going to see in a few moments, when Israel rejected Jesus, they did so knowing that he was Messiah. There was no doubt about it in the mind of the Jews. They knew that Jesus was their Messiah. All right. And because they rejected him, the judgment that came upon them was that God cut them out of his will. He cut out the vineyard to replace them by the Gentiles or the church. So can you see, Israel was God's vine. But because they rejected Jesus, they were cut out of the vine and the Gentiles, the church, were grafted in. So now the church is God's vine. Go to Matthew chapter 21. See one of Jesus' parables about this. Matthew 21. We'll start reading from verse 33. Hear a parable. There was a householder who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower. This is a vineyard. And he led it out to tenants and went to another country. When the season of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another. He sent other ser servants. Afterwards he sent his son, saying, they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let the vineyard out to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their season um, Jesus said to them have you never read in the scriptures the very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner now go down into verse 3 therefore I tell you and this is Jesus speaking to Jews the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruits of it now, can you see that Jesus was predict? He knew that Israel was going to reject him. So he said, you as my vineyard are going to be destroyed, absolutely. All right, you're going to be cut out of Father's will and the Gentiles, a nation producing the fruits of it, is going to come in and be God's vineyard instead. 
Now, the position that that left the disciples, and remember in John 15, Jesus is speaking to them, you've got to understand the position that they are in as Jesus said those words. Now, remember, the disciples were branches of the vine by virtue of being Jews. Because they were Jews. And at the time Jesus was saying this to them, Israel hadn't been cut out of the vine. That didn't happen until the day of Pentecost. It was on the day of Pentecost that Israel was cut out of the vine and replaced by the church, the birth of the church at Pentecost. All right. And so they are branches in the vine by virtue of being Jews. But they are also branches of the vine by virtue of being believers as well. And can you see we're in here a historical transition period? All right. So at the time that Jesus was speaking, you've now got two lots of branches, as it were. You've got the branches who were Jews, and you've got the branches who were Jews and believers as well, because they accepted that Jesus was their Messiah. But remember, what is going to happen in the very near future is that every Jew who was a branch by virtue of being a Jew is now going to cease being a branch in the vine because they're all going to be cut out of God's plan. Now they'll be coming back later as we shall see. But the point is all these Jews who were branches by virtue of being Jews are soon going to lose that position when as Jews and as Israelites Israel is cut out of the vine and the only branches that will then be left would be Jews and Gentiles who have believed on Jesus so therefore Jews who refused to accept Jesus as their Messiah were branches by virtue of being Jews but they are very soon going to be cut out of the vine and not be branches in it anymore. And because the reason that they were going to be cut out was for the very reason they didn't believe on Jesus, therefore they weren't saved, therefore they were lost, therefore, having been cut out of God's vine, when they died, they would be cast into the fire, because as unbelievers, they would eventually end up in the lake of fire. Can you see? And they're thrown into the lake of fire because they are unbelievers. This has nothing to do with believers, all right, losing their salvation. And remember that even though at this time every Jew was a branch in the vine simply by virtue of being a Jew, it was never the case that a Jew was saved just because they're a Jew. It never was the case, it isn't the case, and it never will be. There is only salvation by believing on Jesus. And in the Old Testament, they simply believed in the one who was to come. So no Jew was ever saved by virtue of being a Jew. They were only saved when they, like us, believed on the Lord. But nevertheless, saved or unsaved, every Jew was a branch by virtue of being a Jew, but they were all about to lose that position. The only Jews then being left who were branches as well were Jews like the disciples who were believers on Jesus. So for the disciples, they were branches by virtue of being Jews. But when the Jewish nation was cut out of God's vine, the believers would still be branches, but this time not by virtue of being Jews, but by virtue of being Christians. So can you see the branches who Jesus is talking about who are going to be cut off 
and cast into the fire, they are all the Jews who, by the time Jesus replaced Israel with the church, if they hadn't got saved, they would then no longer be branches, they would be cut off as branches, and then if they died in that state, not believing in Jesus as their saviour and Messiah, therefore they would end up in the lake of fire. So this category of people here, these branches who are torn off and end up in the lake of fire, they were the Jews of Jesus' day who were going to lose their status as branches in God's vine because Israel was about to be cut out of the vine and all the branches cast aside and because they would then die if they didn't believe without knowing Jesus they would end up in the lake of fire so that's who these branches are Jews at the time of Jesus who refused to believe that he was their Messiah and of course later on in the future Israel are of course going to be grafted back in and what God couldn't do through them then he's going to do all right in well, whenever it happens, because after the rapture the church goes, and then Israel are grafted back in, and the world is re-evangelized through the ministry of Israel. All right. Go to Matthew chapter 3, and we'll see, just see John the Baptist actually prophesying this very thing. In his ministry to Israel, Matthew chapter 3, <clears throat> and... Verse 7, this is John the Baptist. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. Vipers being a picture of the devil. They were children of the devil, all right, because they weren't born again. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit that befits repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. You see, because the Jews believed they were saved just because they were Jews. They weren't. They never were. Not in the Old Testament, not now. And he says, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to, Israel, uh, to Abraham. So the point is, all these people that John the Baptist is preaching against, they are at that moment branches by virtue simply of being Jews. But they're not saved. He says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And because Israel didn't become believers, the majority of the Jews in Palestine at the time of Jesus, most of them never became Christians. Therefore, like non-people you know, people today who aren't saved, when they died, they ended up in the lake of fire. They were cast out into the fire. So that sorts that out, all right? Those branches are Jews who refuse to abide in Jesus, who refuse to believe in Jesus and to accept him as their Messiah. They were unbelievers, all right? So John 15, that's that one sorted out. Now the next one is a real Lulu. Many hours sleep are lost by many, many Christians over this one. Alright, and it's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And Satan has really had a field day with this, because there hasn't been teaching given to Christians about what it actually means. And there are Christians walking around today in fear that they've blasphemed the Spirit and therefore are lost. So therefore, go to Matthew 12 and let us see exactly what the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit yeah. is. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 22. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 22. 
Then a blind and dumb demoniac was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by who do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he do who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever says a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, just go over to Mark. And there's just something we want to see in Mark's account of exactly the same event. And in order to understand precisely what the baptism of the Spirit was, we need to have Mark's account. Now, just Mark 3 and verse 28. Now, look at this. Mark 3 and in verse 28... Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, He has an unclean spirit. Now the thing that I want you to get from that is the specific thing that Jesus said was the baptism with the Spirit, was that they, those people standing there, told him that he just cast out a demon by the power of Satan. So the blasphemy against the Spirit was to do with an accusation that Jesus was casting out evil spirits by the power of Satan himself. So that's the first aspect. The second aspect that's important is the people who are making that accusation. They were the leaders, they were the teachers of Israel. They were the religious Jews who knew their Bibles. Now, what we've got to understand at this point, and I said it earlier is you've got to realize that Israel and these leaders, these Jewish leaders who said this to the Lord here, they knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus was their Messiah. Now we covered this in an earlier study when we looked at being born again, but we're, you know, we'll go over it again because there are some here who weren't there then. Do you remember when John the Baptist got thrown in the slammer, he had a few doubts, and he sent his buddies to say to Jesus, look, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? So he had doubts as to whether Jesus was the Messiah or not. So his mates went off and said to Jesus, look, are you or aren't you? All right. And do you remember, Jesus said, go and tell John, all right, and 
what you see and hear, and then he quoted Old Testament prophecy about the signs and wonders. And he said, tell John that I am performing the very signs in this part of the scripture. So the point was, Jesus expected John the Baptist to know that he was Messiah, purely from the fact that he fulfilled the prophecies in the Old Testament of healing and things like that, that Messiah would actually perform. But by the time Jesus came to Israel, it was even more than that. You see, Pharisaic Judaism at the time of Jesus had all manner of teachings and doctrines that they built on top of the scriptures, alright? So they had the scriptures and they believed them, but they also had other teachings that they built on top of the scripture. And one of them was that they had deduced or they had come up with various miracles that they called messianic signs. Alright, there were seven in all, we're only interested in three. And by the time Jesus came on the scene, all the Jews had been taught by their Pharisees that there are certain miracles that only Messiah could perform. No one else, not a prophet, but only Messiah could perform. Now, three of them were this. The first one was healing a leper. This is why there was such a stir when Jesus healed a leper. And the re well, in fact, he healed lots. But the reason was, in Leviticus, there were certain instructions given to the priests about loads of things. And there are two chapters, and one tells the priests how to diagnose leprosy. Because obviously the person had to be put outside the camp, or everyone would catch it. And then the chapter after that told them what sacrifices to perform when a leper was healed. Now, countless times throughout history, the Levites had obeyed the chapter which told them how to diagnose leprosy. They had never, ever, ever in the history of Israel had to use the chapter on what you do when a leper was healed. Because in Israel's history, you will not find one example prior to Jesus of lepers being healed. You will find Gentiles being healed, but you won't find any Israelites in the Old Testament being healed of leprosy. Along came Jesus, and what did he do? He healed lepers. And the reason it caused such a stir was because all the people had been taught for years by the Pharisees that when a man comes who heals lepers, there is Messiah. Another messianic miracle was the healing of a man born blind, which we have recorded for us in John's Gospel. And there are two types of miracles that Jesus worked. There are the standard miracles when everyone was kind of in wonder. But there are other miracles that when you get them, you get phrases like, can this be the son of David? Or, never before in the whole of the world has a man born blind been healed. These were because it was people reacting to a messianic miracle. They were absolutely astounded. So a man, not just someone who was blind being healed, but the, the miracle of a man born blind being healed was a messianic miracle. Along came Jesus and he healed a man born blind. And then a third one, and this is the one that we actually want, is this. 
The Jews were quite aware of the need to bring deliverance to people who had evil spirits. And Jewish exorcists used to use a kind of a formula. And Jesus himself used it sometimes. Uh, only sometimes, all right. But in order for the Jewish exorcists to get someone delivered from the power of an evil spirit, they had to do three things. First of all, they had to establish contact with the evil spirit. They had to establish verbal contact with the evil spirit. They then had to ascertain its name. And only when they knew the evil spirit's name could they then cast it out. Now, that meant that there was one type of evil spirit that no Jew had ever cast out in the history of Israel. And it were dumb spirits, because they don't talk. Therefore, when the Jews, they just learned that when they asked dumb spirits what their name was, dumb spirits don't talk. So because they couldn't establish communication, and because they couldn't find out the spirit's name from the spirit itself, they could never cast out a dumb demon. Therefore, they said that Messiah is the only one who can cast out dumb demons. So they said, when someone has been delivered from a dumb spirit, there you have Messiah. Now, back to Matthew 12. The specific thing was that a blind and dumb demoniac was brought to him. Jesus cast out a dumb spirit. Look at verse 23. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? It's a messianic miracle, and son of David was a messianic term. What the Jews are saying in, the, in their own language, they're saying the Messiah's here. This was what was getting the Pharisees so worried about what was happening. So then, the point is, can you see that Israel knew that Jesus was Messiah? Beyond any shadow of a doubt. On this particular occasion, Jesus proved it to them yet again by casting out a dumb demon. Now the point is, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit was when Israelites, knowing that Jesus was Messiah sent from God, knowing that, then rejected him, and in order to excuse themselves, accused him of working messianic miracles by the power of Satan. Now that is what the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit was. It was a national sin, it was Israel, and it was an unrepeatable sin, because Jesus was only on the earth in the way that he was then, once. Jesus is going to be on the earth again, but not like that. It was an unrepeatable sin. And the blasphemy against the Spirit was when the Jews, in full knowledge that he was Messiah... You see, the problem with Jesus, it wasn't that they didn't think he was the Messiah. They knew he was the Messiah. He was just the wrong sort. Couldn't keep his big mouth shut. Bit like Bible teacher, didn't know when to stop, didn't have any tax, you know, said all the wrong things, did all the wrong things. So the point was, knowing that he was Messiah, they sidestepped that, 
consciously, but to try and justify themselves in the eyes of the people and make themselves look holy, they said he's doing these things by the power of evil spirits, by the power of Satan. And that was the one thing, by definition of their own teaching, it couldn't be. Because they were the ones who had defined messianic miracles. All right. So that was what the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit was. And of course the point is Jesus counts, uh, counters it by showing them how stupid the idea is. Satan casting out Satan? Oh, that's great, isn't it? And he says, this is daft. Satan doesn't cast out Satan. And then he sort of says, if I cast out demons by Satan, what about your sons? Can you see? He says, if you're going to say that I am casting out demons by Satan, you would never ever know if someone casts out a demon by the power of the Lord. And he's just showing them the patent illogicality of the thing that they said. But remember, the only reason they said this wasn't to prove a point. It was to justify themselves in the eyes of the people. It was absolute sheer hypocrisy and dishonesty on their part. And you see, the thing is, it was this, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the rejection of Jesus as Messiah and saying that he was satanic and using that as your excuse. It was that that brought upon Israel the judgment that they were then going to be cut out of God's vine and replaced by the Gentiles. This was the very sin that brought that about. Because Israel rejected Jesus, God said, I reject you, all right, and I'm going to replace you with the Gentiles. Now, it's going to be undone one day. Israel is going to be grafted back in. We know that that's going to happen. And that is going to happen after the church has been taken to heaven. So then, now, bearing that in mind... Go down into verse... Now, which verse do we want? That's right, verse 32. Now, listen to what Jesus says. Whoever says a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Does this mean that individuals have now committed a sin so that they can't ever be saved, even if they believe on Jesus. No, it doesn't. Again, you've got to understand the nature of this sin. It was the national rejection of Jesus as Israel's Messiah under the excuse that he was satanic. Now, when Jesus said, and what he said to them is, this cannot be forgiven, this cannot be undone in this age or in the age to come. Now, what does he mean? When you get phrases like this age or the age to come, we automatically think the age to come means in heaven, in eternity. It doesn't at all. Jesus said, this sin will not be forgiven in this age. What age was it? Well, at the time when they committed this sin, it was the Old Testament age. What was the age to come? The church age. So Jesus said, this sin cannot be forgiven, i.e. Israel cannot be restored to God. There's nothing you can do to get restored and brought back into God's vine. Nothing you can do about it now, because it was this sin in that age that got them cut out. 
Or in the age to come, what was the age to come? The church age. Israel are grafted in only after the church age has ended, after the rapture, when the church is in heaven. So can you see, as a direct consequence from this, the church replaced Israel, and in AD 70, under Titus, uh, the troops, the Roman troops, marched into Jerusalem and completely destroyed it. That, that was the judgment for the blasphemy against the spirit and the fact that since then Israel as a nation has not been the vine will again in time but isn't now that is what the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit means so can you see it's not a question of have I committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit you can't you could only commit it 2,000 years ago if you were a Jew and if Jesus your Messiah had appeared can you see? So it's, it's absolutely irrelevant. It's an Israeli matter. You know, and all this thing about, ah, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Well, no, of course you haven't. And only unbelievers blaspheme the Spirit anyway. It's got nothing to do whatsoever with Christians losing their um, salvation. Now then, bearing that in mind, get this principle. There's a principle now, and you, you must understand this, because we won't understand the other examples we're going to look at unless we understand this principle still in Matthew 12 go down into verse 43 now this is still Jesus speaking to them about the blasphemy in the spirit alright he says when an unclean spirit has gone out of a man he passes through water this place is seeking rest but he finds none then he says I'll return to my house from which I came and when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and brings with him seven other spirits more evil than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. So shall it also be with this evil generation. Now, if you ever read books about demonology, teaching you about what the Bible teaches about demons and casting demons out and stuff like that, if you ever come to chapters which use this bit, tear them out. It's a total deception. Jesus is not talking demonology here. He's speaking a parable about the condition of Israel now that they had done this. Can you see? So Jesus isn't giving us information about demons here. He's simply using a parable involving demons to describe their state now that they've uh, blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And what he says is that if you had someone who had an evil spirit and the evil spirit was, you know, sort of cast out, if that person was not filled with something to take that evil spirit's place, then the spirit would eventually come back, bringing back others, and the state of that person would be worse. It would have been better for him if he'd never had it cast out than if he'd had it cast out and have even more come back as a direct result. Now, Jesus is saying that this is precisely the truth of Israel at that time. Because look what he says, so shall it be also with this evil generation. So what he's saying is, because Israel has blasphemed the Holy Spirit, they are going to be in an absolutely terrible state as a direct consequence. And as we've seen, AD 70, Israel, the temple destroyed, and Israel have been out of God's vine ever since. But the thing to understand is this, this phrase that Jesus used, the last state becomes worse than the first. The last state 
becomes worse than the first. Now notice, Jesus uses that phrase to describe unbelievers, Israel, who have been thoroughly prepared to receive salvation. And yet, once they got to the point where they could, they didn't. Now, can you see that point? This phrase, the last state, is worse than the first. Here, Jesus uses it of Israel. The truth about Israel is that the coming of Messiah was as if a demonized person had been swept clean. Jesus' mere presence absolutely prepared them for salvation. They couldn't have had it on a plate more than they did. He came along, messianic size, everything. So, Jesus said that when someone is... where everything has been necessary, everything has been done that's needed in them to bring them to a point where they can receive salvation, if they then don't receive salvation and reject Jesus, they end up in a worse state than if they had never heard about Jesus in the first place. Now you must understand, this principle of the last state being worse than the first is always, as I'm going to show you, used of unbelievers who are brought to the point where the Holy Spirit has got them absolutely ready for salvation. And yet, even in the knowledge of the truth of Christianity, under the conviction of the Spirit, they then reject. Okay. Now then, with that, go to John chapter 17. Now, we hit upon John 17 last week, and what we hit upon was something that Jesus said about Judas. And I said that today, this time, we will be dealing with Judas. Because Judas presents a little bit of a problem to some Christians. Right, we want John 17, and in verse 12, Jesus says this. He says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition. And we saw this last time, how Jesus said that nothing of what the Father gives him would be lost. But here he says, none of them are lost except the son of perdition. Now again, some people say that because Judas was an apostle, here you have a Christian, a believer, who rejected Jesus and as a consequence lost his salvation. Now what I am going to show you is this. Judas never became a Christian. Judas never became born again. He died as an unbeliever. He was a non-Christian. Go to John 13 and let's see where Jesus himself makes clear that he was aware that Judas wasn't a believer. And in John 13, now in 1 to 11, we have the story of Jesus washing their feet. Let's just, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll dip into it. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart, uh, having loved his own, during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, and he, he got the towel, all right, and he started to wash people's feet, all right? Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter says, what are you doing? 
What are you doing, Jesus? You're washing my feet. Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not know now, but afterwards you will understand. Because Jesus is acting out a parable. I'll explain that in a minute. <coughs> Peter said, You'll never wash my feet. So, you know, and Jesus said, If I do not wash you, you have no part in me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. This is so typically Peter. Jesus said to him, look, he who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is clean all over, and you are clean. But not all of you. Now, can you see, what Jesus is acting out here is this. Because we're born again, if someone turns to Jesus and he's born again, the sin problem, as we have seen in these 25 studies, has been absolutely dealt with. Sin is no longer a problem between them and their father. They've been saved. The sin problem has been dealt with. So therefore, they're washed clean because they've come to Jesus. But the point is that, as I mean, in the ancient world, they didn't have shoes and it was very dusty. So as they went around their normal course of events, I mean, say you're invited to dinner, all right? You're invited to dinner, you have a bath, you're all nice and clean, brush your hair, you know, sort of best toga on, or whatever it was they wore. And, and of course you get there and you're sparkling, you know, absolutely sparkling, except your feet. You see, because you've been walking through desert on the way. So therefore, even though you were clean all over, your feet needed washing, because in the day-to-day -day round of life, they get dirty out in the east, alright. Now what Jesus is saying here, look, you're converted, you're clean, done. You're all spick and span, you're bathed, no problem, presentable to God. But the point is, as we go on our daily lives, we, we fall into sin. You see, our, our feet get dirty and, and therefore we need them washed. Jesus, it's 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, forgive us our sins. But the point is, is what Jesus said to Peter, because he says, I'm going to wash you. Peter says, no. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you can't have any part of me. And Jesus said, right, do the lot. Right? And Jesus said, no, you're misunderstanding. And he says, you are all, there's no need for me to wash you because you're already made clean by my words. You've believed on me. All right. But he is clean all over and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, you are not clean. Jesus was perfectly aware that at this last supper one of the disciples hadn't got born again yet and it was Judas he hadn't got saved therefore he was an unbeliever uh, go down into verse 16 he says truly truly I say to you a servant is not greater than his master etc verse 18 I am not speaking of you all I know whom I have chosen it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, bearing that in mind, go to Matthew 26, which is Matthew's account of the Last Supper. So we're on exactly the same thing. And there's something very important and very interesting here. Matthew 16. And, sorry, Matthew 26. Forgive me. Matthew 26. Now then. Do you remember at the Last Supper that Jesus, he, he said, whoever, you know, sort of dips his bread in the wine with me, he is that will portray me. Mm. Now, in the East at that time, in Israel, that, that meant something. And what it meant was, if you had a host, 
who was hosting a meal and his friends came and Jesus was the host at the Last Supper. All right. If there was someone there you especially wanted to honour, you let the host would first dip his bread in to start. You would, if there was someone you especially wanted to honour, you let them dip with you. At the Last Supper, G Jesus knew that Judas wasn't saved yet. So what did Jesus do? He, Judas became the person of honour at that meal because Jesus was trying so hard to get Judas to repent and to be saved. And in having Judas dip his bread in with Jesus at the same time, that was Jesus' last ditch stand to win Judas to himself with his love. And of course it didn't happen. Judas still refused to become a believer. Alright. So Judas went out to betray Jesus. He was an unbeliever. Now in Matthew 26 and verse 24, listen to this. The Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking. The Son of Man, this is just after Judas has gone, alright, out to betray him. The Son of Man goes as it is written to, of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. There's our principle. That's what Jesus said of Israel when they blasphemed the Spirit. Can you see? It's speaking of someone who has been brought absolutely to the point where they can be saved. And yet in the full knowledge that Jesus is trying to save them, they still turn against him and reject them. And reject him. Can you see? Judas here was an unbeliever. That's why he was lost. That's why he was a son of perdition. Because God in his foreknowledge always knew that Judas would never repent. Therefore he died, he wasn't a Christian, he will end up in the lake of fire. And in Jesus using this phrase, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Can you see he's speaking of an unbeliever who was got ready for salvation but didn't come through and died in a state of being not being born again. Died as an unbeliever. Now, go to 2 Peter 2. And 2 Peter chapter 2 is one of the ones that really baffles people. And I've been showing you this principle, alright? The last state is worse than the first. Precisely because in some of these issues, it's the principle that we need that shows us exactly what the Bible means. Now then, 2 Peter chapter 2, and first of all, go to verse 17. Go to verse 17. Now then, these, this is Peter talking about some certain people. He says, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the nether gloom of darkness has been reserved. For, uttering loud boasts of folly, they entice with licentious passions of the flesh men who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They, these people, promise them freedom. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a man, to so that he's enslaved. For if, if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, 
they are again entangled in them and overpowered, the last state has become worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog turns back to his own vomit and the sow is washed only to wallow in the mire. The pig is washed only to wallow in the mire. Now, so who are this group of people that Peter is talking about. Go to the beginning of chapter 2 and we will see. And in chapter 2 and verse 1, these are the people, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now then, so what Peter is saying, in the Old Testament there were false prophets. And he says in the same way, you, the church, you are going to find that false teachers are going to come in amongst you. Now, most people say that these false teachers are Christians, they're believers. And the reason they do it is this, that in verse 1 it says that they deny the master they deny the master who bought them. And they say, look, these men have been bought by Jesus. They're redeemed. Therefore, they're Christians. And that's wrong. Cast your mind way back to the beginning of this series when we were seeing how the various barriers that comprised the problem of sin were broken down by Jesus. And you remember when we looked at redemption and ransom, seeing how Jesus dealt with the fact that we were all enslaved in the slave market of sin. Do you remember I showed you how the truth of the matter was that the whole that in the death of Jesus the whole world past present and future had been ransomed the price had been paid for everybody but that you're only redeemed or you only actually walk out of the slave market when you actually become a Christian so we saw that the ransom the price has been paid for everybody and I mean in a in 1 Timothy 2 verses 5 to 6 Paul talks about Jesus there's one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus who gave his life as a ransom for all so the fact that these men have been bought by the master is totally insignificant everybody every unbeliever throughout history as well as every Christian throughout history have all been bought ransomed through Jesus's death so that is really no problem at all alright but who are these people, these false teachers, who do they get compared to? Well, go down into verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, or it should be Tartarus, and we've covered these earlier in the course, these are the demons who took on physical shape at the time of Noah, started to have sex and to, to, to procreate this kind of you know, half-demon, half-human race. And these were the angels that God then, these demons, were cast down into Tartarus. And they've been there ever since, all right? So then, these false teachers, first of all, they're likened to those demons who did that sin before the days of Noah. Well, do they represent, I mean, do demons represent in any way at all believers who fall away? Well, of course they don't. They represent total 100% people who don't believe, who never got saved. Uh, verse 6, they're likened to the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Now, are the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah a kind of a picture of people who got saved and followed the Lord and fell away? Of course they're not. You know, I mean, they're just straight unbelievers. Always were and were up until the day they died when God actually destroyed the city. All right. Now then, let's go up to verse 20. All right. And it says of them, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, if they are then entangled in them and overpowered, the last state has become worse than the first. Who are we talking about? We are talking about men and women, people, who the Holy Spirit is, I mean the Holy Spirit is working in everyone all the time to convict them of sin and to show them that they need Jesus. These are men and women in whom that work of the Holy Spirit, prevenient grace, if you like the theological terms, I personally don't, so I'll shut up about that. But these, these are people who have gone a good way down the road. The Holy Spirit has really convicted them. They know that Jesus is alive. They know that they are sinners. Look, through their knowledge of the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. They know 100%. They know the issues. The blindness of Satan has been removed from their minds. They can see clearly. Alright. And everything needed for them to be saved and become Christians, everything needed has been done. All they have to do is to step over the line into salvation. But what do these people do? They fall away. They don't get converted. But the danger is that often, by the time people have reached that state, whether they eventually get saved or not, very often by then they're in churches. And Peter's warning them against mistaking unbelievers for believers just because they know the truth in their head, you see. And therefore, because we see this phrase, the last state has become worse than the first, it's these unbelievers who were absolutely ready, the veil was removed, they're convicted of sin, they know that Jesus is there, they're absolutely at the point of getting saved. All they have to do is do it, and they reject Jesus. They reject Jesus. And of course, what happens, they end up in a worse state than if they had never heard the gospel at all. Because Satan then just sort of piles in, and they've rejected Jesus, and the judgment comes upon them for having done that. They rejected Jesus in full knowledge that he was their saviour, and that they needed salvation. So then, therefore, morally, they end up in a, a worse mess than ever. And Peter's warning them, don't, mistake these people for genuine Christians and especially because some people are very clever I mean so they can do Bible studies without being saved some people are just like that they're intelligent they're you know they got the old gift of the gab and and sometimes they can get through and they, they end up in positions of authority and of course because they're not believers eventually they wreck the church they end up in you know, being immoral and bringing heresy. Remember, they're false teachers. They're not genuine Christians at all. Remember, the picture Jesus gave when Israel blasphemed the Spirit 
was that he said, my mere presence among you, it's as if you were a house swept clean. Can you see, there's been a moral improvement just because of my presence. And when the Holy Spirit, in many people, is convicting them, you do see a moral improvement. They start to get a little bit careful. But don't mistake that for actual conversion, alright? You've got to be very, very careful about it. And go down into verse 22, because this is the point. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. And this is Proverbs 26, verse 11. He's quoting the Old Testament now. The dog turns back to his own vomit, and the pig is washed only to wallow in the mire. So what he's saying, the result of these people, is that they're dogs who turn away from their vomit, but they go back to it. They're pigs who get washed, and they end up back in the sty. The point is this, the dog is still a dog and the pig is still a pig. Whereas the teaching of the Bible about someone who gets converted is this, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, the new has come, the old has passed away. So can you see, these people in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter is not there talking in any way at all about believers. He's warning them against people who came to the point where they knew the truth of the gospel, they knew their need, and yet they still rejected Jesus. And in fact, in Jude's little letter from verses 3 to 16, you get a parallel passage dealing with exactly the same people. Right, go to Matthew 13. Let's have a look at the parable of the sower. Because this, this causes a bit of trouble for some people. Jesus' parable of the sower. Matthew 13, verse 3. And Jesus told them things in parables. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they didn't have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. But since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, it, it withered away. Other seeds fell upon thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now if you go down into verse 18, Jesus explains it to the disciples. When anyone hears, uh, yeah, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, I, they hear the gospel about Jesus and does not understand it. The evil one comes, snatches away what is sown in his heart and what was sown along the path. And what was sown on rocky ground, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Well, this is someone who's got converted, all right? immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is he who hears the word, but the cares of the world and delight in riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And, what was, and for what was sown on good soil, this is he who hears the word and understands it, he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now what we've got here is a parable about four types of people who hear the gospel. Alright? And Jesus explains it. The first type is someone who hears the gospel and rejects it. Alright? As simple as that. Unbelievers. The second type is someone who hears the gospel 
alright, receives it, gets converted, but doesn't last five minutes and withers up. The third person is someone who hears the gospel, receives it, gets saved, they last a bit longer, but eventually the cares of the world get them, and they wither up, they're choked. But the fourth seed is someone who hears the gospel, receives it, gets born again, follows Jesus, and then lives a fruitful and dedicated and committed Christian life. And Jesus is able to produce fruit from them. All right. So four types of people, three Christians, one who isn't a Christian, who never got converted. But what is the context of the parable? What is the parable about? What is the point of it? The point of it is Jesus is teaching that there are varying degrees of fruit you can bear when you get converted. This isn't a parable about salvation, whether it can be lost or not. It's simply a parable about fruit, sanctification. A, you know, a, a kind of an effective Christian life. That's all. And Jesus is simply saying, that there are three types of Christians. One who gets saved and falls away quickly, one who gets saved and falls away after a while, however long that is, and one who never falls away. It's got nothing to do with loss of salvation. The point of the parable is the production of fruit. And Jesus is showing you can be a fruitful believer or you can be a fruitless believer. That's all. It's got nothing to do. There's no mention that those who fall away lose their salvation. It's a fact that Christians fall away. There's nothing in this parable that's, any, that's commenting at all on whether if you do, you lose your salvation. That's not the point of the parable. The point is varying degrees of fruitfulness if you do become a Christian. And obviously, as Christians, we're to make sure that we are bearing that fruit and that we're among those who don't fall away but that we remain faithful to the Lord till the end not because we lose our salvation if we don't we covered that last time but just because Jesus is like that it's worth being faithful to him I mean believe you know Belinda is very high on my list of people it's worth being faithful to and so is Jesus can you see so I mean you know the point of the parable is that if you're going to get converted please be fruitful don't be like the ones who fall away. Right, go to James. We've got a few quickies coming up now, and then I think we finish. Book of James. Because again, sometimes you get people sort of all, you know, but what about this one? My Bible says you can lose your salvation. Book of James, and find chapter 5 and verse 19. <clears throat> Right, my brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Ah, what does that mean? Well, we've already seen earlier on in the course that when it says save his soul from death, we've seen that soul is, is you. Alright, that you have a body you have a spirit and you are a soul the soul is you so when you talk about uh, you know that old lady being a dear old soul that is what the bible means soul is the, the real you the person in there all right you're not a spirit you are a soul so this is just a jewish way of saying that you know that whoever brings a sinner from their error of his ways will save his soul from death you save them from death Alright, now then, what is this death? We've got here the scenario of a Christian who falls away and gets into error. So he's being unfaithful to the Lord. And James is saying, if you win them back to the Lord, then you save them from death. Right, so what is the death? Well, as we've already seen, it might actually be the sin unto death. 
you know, some Christians go that far. But if it is the sin unto death that he's talking about, well, all it means is that uh, they die and go to be with the Lord, you see. So, I mean, if it means that, it's got nothing to do with losing salvation. But there's something else it can mean as well. Do you remember in Revelation, I think the church at uh, Laodicea or whatever, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1, Jesus said to that church, you have the name of being alive, but you are dead. So in actual fact, it's not necessary for this word to mean physical death. Even if it does, it's got nothing to do with saying that you can lose your salvation. Because we've seen the sin under death doesn't mean that. But it could just mean spiritual death. Because if someone falls away, well what is spiritual death? Being separated from God. And even though a believer can never be separated from God salvation, eternal salvation wise, we know that even as believers, our sins come take us out of fellowship with God. It, you know, in regards to our relationship with him. So therefore, if a Christian goes up the spout or something like that, if they don't repent, they're, they're, they're just heading into more and more spiritual death. So therefore, James is simply saying, look, when you see that happening to a Christian, it's worth going after them, all right, lovingly, gently, but go after them because you want to rescue them from that death that might ensure, all right. Okay, one last batch, okay, and these batch, they're all the same thing that Paul says, just in different places in the Bible, that's all. Go to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. We do believe in being thorough here. But it's very important that we are. What, what, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We, we have some unruly brethren and sistren amongst us tonight. 1 Corinthians. Right. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, alright, and we want verse 9, okay? 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. Do you not know, now this is Paul writing to believers, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor practicing homosexuals that would mean nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor revilers nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God and such were some of you but you were washed sanctified justified etc so the point is that here Paul is writing to Christians and he's saying if you do these things then you will not inherit the kingdom of God and it's true you won't and what Paul is saying here is this. Obviously, he's speaking about Christians who are carrying on willfully in the sin of their pre-Christian life. Willfully, i.e. they're not repenting of it, they're not struggling with it. There is all the difference between uh, a, a guy who gets saved, alright, and of course, out, out there now, I mean, for instance, being sexually immoral is the norm. It wasn't 30 years ago, now it is, you see. People are used to it. Now, if he gets converted, there's all the difference between him every now and then falling into sin and repenting, and people need help and encouragement. It's not easy. Because remember, they get saved, alright, and the next day they go back to work or something like that, and there's the women in the office trying to seduce them, and vice versa. Can you see? That's the kind of world they live in. There's all the difference in the world between someone who's been converted and falls into sin again and struggles with it. Can you see? Because every time they sin, if they repent of it, if they confess it, they're forgiven. 
but that's vastly different from someone who gets converted and then lives in willful sin refusing to admit it's wrong. Can you see that distinction? Now Paul is saying that if you're going to be a Christian who's going to carry on in willful sin refusing to admit that it's wrong and refusing to repent of it and struggling with it then he says you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Alright? Uh, so you won't inherit the kingdom of God. My goodness, what, what does that mean? And incidentally for those of you... Uh, taking notes, Galatians 5 verse 19 and Ephesians 5 verse 5, Paul repeats exactly the same thing, alright now then, remember we have seen in this course that salvation, in fact in the Bible, is far more comprehensive than being saved from the lake of fire we've seen it's past, present and future we've seen that there's past salvation to be saved from the penalty of sin, alright so that when you get converted you are then saved from the penalty of sin. And that's past salvation because it's once and for all. Alright? And we've seen that that's what the Bible calls justification and it's through Jesus' death. But we went on to see that then salvation is also present tense. Because once you're converted and delivered from the penalty of sin, God then wants to go on and deliver us from the power of sin in our lives and that's going on now and will do until we die or the rapture happens and we've seen that that's what the bible calls sanctification to be set free from the power of sin in our lives and that that is accomplished not through jesus's death but through his resurrection because jesus is alive and wants to live through us that's what holiness is not you being holy it's jesus living his life through us and then we saw that salvation has a future tense, alright, and that one day we are going to be delivered even from the very presence of sin. And that's what the Bible calls glorification, and that's through Jesus' return. Because we're all going to get glorified bodies, and we will all be sinless just like Jesus. Now what you've got to understand is this. In regards to your past salvation, and therefore your future salvation, nothing can change that. You've believed on Jesus, if indeed you have, you are saved. Nothing can affect your future salvation. Being born again is enough. Nothing can ever take that from you. But when we were dealing with present salvation, sanctification, we saw that unless you live right with God and live in repentance and confession of sin daily, all the time, minute by minute, if you don't do that, then you cannot come into the inheritance of the life of Jesus that Father has for us now. So Paul says, if you're going to carry on in willful sin, don't expect to inherit the kingdom of God. But by the kingdom of God, he's speaking there about Jesus' rule in our lives now on earth. He's talking about sanctification. Because if you carry on in willful sin, whatever it is, you're out of fellowship with Father. That is just the truth of it. And no way are you going to receive the inheritance of the life of Jesus and the rule and the reign of Jesus in your life if you maintain, continue to be in willful sin and not actually right with him. So Paul says in regards to present salvation and all three of these things, remember it's in Galatians and Ephesians as well, he's saying you won't inherit what Father has for you now because you can only inherit it progressively as you remain right with God in repentance and and confession of sin and also we saw in future salvation as well that after the second coming for a thousand years Jesus reigns on the earth 
alright, and that believers are actually going to share in that reign with him. There are going to be different uh, sort of positions of varying authority up for grabs in the kingdom of God. And that will be the literal kingdom of God in the thousand year reign of Christ. And we saw that the amount of authority that we individually will exercise in that thousand years on earth the extent of that authority is decided at the judgment seat of Christ based on our faithfulness now. Alright? So therefore, in regards to future salvation, Paul is saying, don't expect a slice of the kingdom of God. Don't expect authority in the kingdom of God if you're not living under the authority of Jesus now. Alright? So the point is that, I mean, I think when we were dealing with the thousand year reign of Christ on earth and everything like that, and the varying degrees of authority according to faithfulness, I think I said that, I mean, I mean, someone's, someone's got to have Miami, I put in for Florida, but for heaven's sake, someone's got to do Neeson, and someone has got to do Harold Hill. And, and that's going to be the unfaithful believers, they only get a teensy winksy little bit of authority, and, and that our aim ought to be, you know, to go for the top jobs. So, there... Can you see, if you live out of fellowship with sin, uh, if you live out of fellowship with God through sin now, Paul is saying you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God now, here, and you're not going to get uh, real authority during the thousand year reign of Christ. And that really, as we saw, that it means loss of reward at the judgment seat of Christ. Because the extent of authority that God gives us in the thousand year reign of Christ, they are the rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. But, if you've been unfaithful, then you don't get a reward. It's just loss. You don't get anything at all. Okay, it's as simple as that. So, I think we've seen, quite clearly, we've asked the question, can salvation be lost? And, uh, I mean, I, I'm not aware of any other passages in the Bible that people use to say you can lose your salvation. I mean, tonight and during the rest of the course, we have certainly covered the main ones. There might be one or two here and there that I haven't thought of, or whatever that I've forgotten, but by and large, you've got it. All these scriptures, I've shown you exactly what they mean. You need be in no doubt about them whatsoever. The Bible does not teach you can lose your salvation. The Bible teaches you cannot lose your salvation. And the only reason that people say you can is because Satan has deceived them and got them misapplying bits of the Bible. Taking them out of context, not understanding what they actually mean, therefore making them mean something else completely. In this case, that you can lose your salvation. Well, you can't. Well, that's it. 25 talks, approximately 35 hours of solid teaching. I give you, ladies and gentlemen, salvation. Amen. Amen.